Man, it is good to be back with y'all. Thankful to Jeremy for bringing the word from 1 Thessalonians uh, last week. Thankful, thankful for uh, God bringing he and his wife here a number of years ago and the way God has gifted him uh, to aid in leading us as a body as he serves as one of our elders. This morning we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, just picking up right after where Jeremy left off last week. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 uh, through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front of it. It's going to let you know how to locate the book of 1 Thessalonians. And then as we're making our way through there, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. So let's, let's read this passage uh, together and then we'll walk through. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Before our Lord Jesus, it is coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Would you pray with me once again? Father, we thank you that this morning we have an opportunity to open your word. God, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to meet with you. Uh, Your word tells us, the Bible tells us that as your word goes forth, that it will not return void. God, we want to see Uh, The men and women in this room, the children in this room, grow closer to you, look more like your son, Uh, be more like your son in this community. God, as we come into this place, we do so with a terrific amount of of baggage and difficulty and frustrations and disappointments. And God, I pray that you would just help us to see those things in light of your glory, to see those things in light of eternity. God, help us in this time and these moments that we have together to focus on you and on your word. We ask that your spirit would flow freely in this place, moving in and out of our hearts and lives, applying the truth of your word to our hearts, that we would be set free, that we would be lit on fire to live for you passionately, giving all of ourselves for the mission of Jesus. Father, this morning our hearts break for those the world over in Ukraine and elsewhere as men and women wake up today in the loss of loved ones, in the midst of war, struggling to find food, struggling to stay alive. Your word tells us that you are a God of peace and a God of justice. We long to see your justice reign. We long to see your peace established and to be so uninterrupted. God, we desire to see Jesus come back and to set all wrong right. We want to see an end of tears and sorrow and sickness, famine, war. God, we want to see the earth as you created it to be, not the earth as we have made it to become. So, Father, this morning we pray towards that end, and we pray uh, for the men and women who are on the borders of the Ukraine and working within the Ukraine, ministering to those in need. We pray for the hearts of leaders to be softened. The Bible tells us that the king's heart is like streams of water in the hands of God. God, we want to see hard hearts softened. We want to see changes made. God, I pray for the other churches in our community, as Caleb did a minute ago. We would see such a revival break out in Greenville, Texas, through any one of the churches here, through all of the churches here, that we would just see men and women come to know you and be saved. 
dead hearts made alive, men and women moving from darkness to light. God, would you help us to join with them, praying for them, as we are all operating under your sovereignty and under the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ. We submit these things in this time to you in his name. Amen. Amen. So uh, let's look back just kind of briefly uh, where Jeremy was last week, because I want to kind of have that in our mind, because that's what helps this next section make sense. So peek just really quickly back up at 13 through 16. Uh, uh, 2, 1 through 12, Paul's going through and he's defending his ministry. 13 through 16, he's beginning to talk to them in some sense about the suffering that they have endured. He says they've, they've endured suffering not uh, just at the hand of the Jews like those in Judea, but they've endured suffering at the hand of their countrymen. And so what we see there is those in Thessalonica are, are suffering for the gospel and in the middle of suffering, in the middle of their countrymen, the, their neighbors, the people they do business with, making life hard for them, making things difficult for them, they begin to have this question that's rolling through their mind. Does anybody care? Is anybody concerned with us? Does, does Paul care? Is, is Paul concerned with us? And certainly there were those who uh, were not fans of Paul that would say things like, you know, if, if Paul really cared, he would be here with you in your time of need. He would be here with you. He wouldn't be leaving you alone in the middle of these things. He'd be walking with you guys through these things. But I don't know if you've noticed this, but, things, but since things got difficult in Thessalonica, Paul hasn't been here. He's not been in this town. He's not been anywhere near. And so they begin to have this sense of understanding of where are you in the middle of these things. And so Paul is writing in some sense to address the reasons he's not there in his feelings towards the Thessalonians. Now look at how he addresses this. He says, since we were torn away from you. Now the language Paul uses here really evokes the picture of what it is to be orphaned. Of what it is to be orphaned. Now, we think about orphan in the, in the 21st century of, of, of a child having no parents. But in the first century, it can occupy kind of both senses. And so if, uh, if we're taken away from our kids, we could be orphaned from them. If our kids are taken away from us, they could be orphaned from us. And so you remember that Paul used the imagery of a father. He used the imagery of a mother. And now here he uses the imagery of a child. And what it was like for Paul to be forcibly removed from people he had led to the Lord. He doesn't describe it in terms of, you remember when we were there and things weren't going so well and we snuck away in the middle of the night? He says, we were torn away from you. There's a picture there of violence perpetrated against Paul. There's a picture there in some sense of his unwillingness and the forcefulness it was required to exert upon him to take him away from those Thessalonians. You remember when we were torn away from you. And look at how he describes it. He says, we were torn away from you in person, but not in heart. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that even as Paul is removed from them physically, and so he's not able to have proximity to them, he's not able to be with them, for them to see him, still they occupy a considerable amount of thought in his mind and in his heart. Paul is motivated and centered on these Thessalonian believers. He cares for them. He says, listen, it's for a season in person, but not in heart. And so what's Paul doing in this interim time? 
in this interim time that he's taken away from them, that he's removed from them. Well, we get the sense, we get the impression here in the second half of verse 17 that he's been trying to go back over and over and over again. Listen to what he says. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Man, I, I think back to uh, March 2020 and kind of the time that followed, and then nobody's in this room. Like, we're not able to gather. Uh, we made the decision to go remote, and so we're going all live stream all the time uh, up from the youth room and broadcasting into many of your homes in the afternoons and the, in the mornings, and some of you just not broadcasted at all. But nevertheless, and so we're in this time, and we had no ability to see face-to-face. And it created in uh, those of us on staff, just this, this anxiety, this desire to be with you again. I mean, this is what it is to be absent, to be separated from people you care for, people you love. Now, I, most of you know this. I grew up, I lived uh, in Europe. My family lived here in the U.S. And so we're hours and hours away by plane travel through the 80s and the 90s. And I only saw my extended family in the summertime. And so we had this sense at which, man, like we want to see them face to face. We didn't have Zoom, we didn't have FaceTime, we didn't have any of those things. We had par avion, we had airmail, right? And I couldn't read curses, so I could never read my grandmother's letters. My mom had to read them to me for the longest time. But like that was our connection. And we felt like that connection was significant, but we knew that connection was anemic. It wasn't enough to connect us. Just like the connection, if, if during this time, if we had never come back to gathering as a body of people in this, there is only so much technology can accomplish. Like, it's nice to be able to see, it's nice to be able to faux, uh, uh, communicate, and, you know, you post on the thread and whatever, and somebody gives you hard eyes back, and then they're like, oh, no, I gave them hard eyes, and then they give you the thumbs up, and, and all these various things. Like, technology is nice for this thing, but you can't replicate online what occurs in any given church. Because the Bible gives us this, the, the sense in the presence, the sense and the understanding, rather, that the presence of God is moving and stirring in this place, unlike an online, remote, mediated presence. Paul gets that. Like first century, Paul understands there's something significantly different that happens when you're together in the same room, worshiping the same Lord together. Amen? So he wants to see them. He's desiring to see them. He's leveraging everything to make this happen. He wants to be face-to-face with them. He wants to see them in the flesh. Because he wanted to come to them again and again. But look what he says here. But Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Now Paul, in this, is giving us a bunch of theology that I want us to unpack for just a minute. But let's think about possibly why. Why might God be allowing Satan to hinder Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy from being able to come back to the Thessalonians? Now, I think we can begin to get into this with this understanding that, look at that in chapter 3, that eventually what he does, is eventually what he does in chapter 3, verse 2, we find out that he sent Timothy to the Thessalonians. And see, he sent Timothy there to do what? To establish and exhort them in their faith that no one might be moved by these afflictions. Paul is not ignorant of their suffering. He's not uncaring about their suffering. But God had some special purpose for Timothy. 
He has some special purpose for Timothy, to, for him to go there. Over in Philippians 2, uh, verses 19 through 22, this is how Paul talks about Timothy. Speaking to the Philippians, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. So one of the reasons possibly that God allowed Satan to be a hindrance to Paul is so that Paul himself wouldn't go back there, but Timothy would. Paul himself wouldn't be able to go back there at this point, but Timothy would. You'll remember back in uh, Acts 17 that Paul is there in Thessalonica, that uh, a group of people break into a Bible study happening in Jason's house, that they usher Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy out of the city. They go on to Berea, and they're stuck there in the midst of these things. And so all this time, Paul is trying to figure out, how do I go back? How do I go back? How do I go back? Now, uh, there are a number of different ways or different reasons, perhaps, that Satan was orchestrating and using these things. One of the thoughts is that the, the bond that Jason had to put forward specifically restricted Paul and Sylvanus coming back. So if they showed back up in town, that Jason would forfeit that money. Another thought is that Paul had some significant health issue at stake that was prohibiting him from traveling back. And so it could have been any number of those things. And we could spend hours and hours drinking coffee you're going to buy me to discuss these things. But we simply don't know. But what we can read from this is that he was hindered from going back. He was prevented from going back. Now this leads us to an understanding. that, that There's some research, there's some depth of understanding that we have to come to. Now certainly you've either heard it on TV or you've heard somebody come up to you and say something along these lines. Listen, I didn't want to do it but the devil made me do it. Right? And it's this kind of get out of jail free card. Oh, I didn't really want to do it. Oh, I'm so sorry I did that. The devil made me do it. Satan made me do it. Well, that, that seems not to be the case. That's not what Paul's describing. You see, Paul has the ability to discern, to know, to understand the difference between God restricting something and Satan moving to hinder him. In Acts 16, in Acts 16, verses, Acts 16, verses 6 through 7, Paul spoke of the same kind of hindrance, the same kind of obstacle, but there he attributed it to the Spirit of God. Acts 16, 6 and 7. He says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Real similar circumstances. There's somewhere Paul wants to go and he's unable to go. He wants to go, as we read in Thessalonians, he wants to go back to Thessalonica. We read there in Acts that he wants to go into Bithynia and he's not able. The Spirit of God restricts him from going. Now what this requires for Paul and what this requires from us is the ability to discern what is a hindrance from Satan and what is an obstacle or a no from the Lord. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you just simply and plainly, and we don't have time to really work all of these things out, but every open door isn't an invitation to the Lord to walk through. That every open window isn't an invitation from the Lord to crawl through. That every closed door from the Lord isn't an indication to stop. And that every closed window from the Lord isn't an invitation to say, oh, it's closed. 
Our Christian lives are far more difficult and it's far more necessary for us to investigate and to seek to discern what is the will of the Lord in my life. First and foremost, I'll tell you this, the will of God in your life is your holiness. The will of God in your life is your holiness. If you're trying to decide at the end of the service today, and this is a serious one, do you go Mexican or Italian? I don't know. I don't know. It's tough. What did you have to eat yesterday? You had pizza? I'd go Mexican. You had pizza? I'd go pizza again. I mean, like, like what is your stomach telling you? Listen to what your body needs. Like, there, there are certain questions that we just don't seek to have answered, right? In the morning when you wake up and you go into the cupboard and you're grabbing a bowl of cereal, like, you're not, Father, in this moment as I stand here, I see before me Lucky Charms and Wheaties. Father, which one would you have me to eat? Like, you're not doing that. You're not in, engaging in that. So, like, what level of question do you have to come to that you are actually interested in God weighing in? Is it how you spend your money? Is it how you spend your time? God is concerned with all aspects of your life, but his primary concern for you and his primary will for your life is your holiness, your sanctification. And when that's what you're pursuing, you will find yourself making decisions that lead you in that path, that lead you in that way. So then how then do we discern what is Satan and what is the Lord? Simply let me give you this as a direction. What we recognize as a hindrance are those things which block the advancement of the gospel. Those things which block the advancement of the gospel. So when Paul is there and he's in, in uh, Berea and he wants to get back to Thessalonica, he's worried that they're going to fall away for the persecution and that they're not going to continue to grow in their faith. He's worried, not that he wants to go back and spend time with his friends, but he's worried about the advancement of the gospel. And as he's seeking to move for the advancement of the gospel, he is providentially hindered through the orchestration of Satan. And so God is allowing Satan to move in these ways. But recognize this, God is working all things together for his glory and our good, which is why Timothy is able to go back so that God can continue to grow and move in him. Recognize this, that when we're seeking to discern whether or not it's Satan or the Lord, is it blocking the advancement of the gospel and what does godly wisdom tell you? What does godly wisdom tell you? Find some godly brothers or sisters in your life. Lay out the situation with them and for them. And then ask them, would you endeavor with me to pray through these things, seeking to discern the will of God? Don't seek to do this on your own. We can be infinitely, perfectly, wonderfully twisted all around ourselves when we lock ourselves into a silo of decision-making. I can lead myself to believe any number of things, but when I go out and I share it with Tim and Macy and Samantha and Chad, and when I'm sharing it, and we're kind of, and Henley, and we're kind of gathered together, and we're talking about these things, and we're collaborating together, and we're putting our heads together, and they begin to say, I don't know, I'm not sure this is the will of God for your life. We are making decisions in the community that God has put us in. And we are operating as the body is intended to work, according to the way Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 12. We are a body and we operate as such. And so we want to, is it blocking the advancement of the gospel? What do others say? I'm allowing their wisdom and their input. Now understand this about how God works and how God operates. The book of Job gives us the understanding that God is sovereign and that he does on occasion allow Satan to have access to your life. 
Now, this is a difficult thing to understand and a difficult thing to wrap our minds around. Paul describes his own personal interaction and experience of this in 2 Corinthians 12, in verse 7. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So he'd seen these amazing revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. And how does he describe it? He says, it is a messenger of Satan. To do what? To harass me. For what end? To keep me from becoming conceited. You see both purposes working there. Satan is all kind of messed up in Paul's life. He's got this messenger that's just over there, and he's just turning the screws and turning the screws and turning the screws, creating as much pain and havoc and discomfort as he possibly can in Paul's life. And he's got this kind of heinous, giddy laugh that's something kind of like in my mind, <laughs> like that's what he's saying as he is, 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 is exacting pain and vengeance. <laughs> Turn them. That's what he's doing in Paul. But Paul recognizes God is allowing this to happen because I have this propensity towards conceit. And so even if Satan is inflicting harm and penalty and punishment and pain in my life, God is allowing this to happen to keep me from being conceited because his love for me is infinitely greater than Satan's hate for me. And on occasion, God in his compassion and in his sovereignty allows us to endure and experience terrific hardship. Now, candidly, I'll tell you that there will be occasions when you endure hardship and you have no understanding, you have no ability to see the rainbow on the other side, the silver lining. This isn't necessarily an indication of God's failure. It's not an indication of God's failure, but it is an indication of the limited nature of our scope and vision. God's ways are not our ways. Man, I sure wish they were sometimes. But I'm thankful, and I trust in God, and I trust in his character. He is sovereign. We need to recognize in the middle of these things that we don't war against flesh and blood. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, he says, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers against, or that are over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we come to understand that, we have a different possibility for knowing how rightly to engage in these things. Now, oftentimes, these heavenly forces these, these, these powers and principalities, they look like our neighbor. They look like a system. They look like a government. They look like armies. They look like sickness. But when we come to recognize our dependence on God and trusting in his sovereignty and then recognizing all of the things that are marshaled against us or the orchestrations of an enemy, we begin to think of them differently. We begin to trust God especially. And we begin to see the ways that he's using the people who are attacking us in our lives, not as they're primarily evil, but God is using them as a pawn to be played out in the game of Satan. So what is our approach to Satan? Maybe that you're just hoping I would have started there. Let's look in two places. 1 Peter 5 and James 4. 1 Peter 5 and James 4. If you want to write that down and find it later, you can do that. 
1 Peter 5. Let's read 6 through, uh, let's read 6 through 11. Look at what he says here first. He says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. You've got to be humble. You've got to trust in the Lord, recognizing that God cares for us. Be sober-minded, so be clear of thought. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Your adversary, you actually have one, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The supernatural enemy that Paul writes about in Ephesians 6, 12, his whole intent in, in, in the horde of hell, its whole intent is to wreck your life, that your life might be left in the ruins so that all those who looked at you and found encouragement might find themselves being discouraged. Paul, want, or Paul recognizes that Satan wants to destroy your life in this church and everything you ever touch and anywhere you ever go. And he wants to leave you so incredibly discouraged that you don't ever attend church, you don't ever gather together with other believers, and he's going to seek to do that, to accomplish that through a myriad of means, and few of them are readily discernible. He's going to lead you to do that through being disappointed in other people. He's going to lead you to do that through being disappointed in church. He's going to lead you to do that through misunderstandings. He's going to lead you to do that through every means he possibly can, because he knows you and your weakness. He's not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing, but he's incredibly smart and decidedly dastardly. And so he sees you have this conversation, or demons are observing you having a conversation where you're tearing down a fellow brother or sister, and then they're working to, lead, to, to, to have them tear you down. And this is how he's stirring things up in a church, reminding you over and again, oh yeah, I really am angry with that person. I really am disappointed in that person. Calling out and describing to you in detail various ways you should seek revenge. Look at what he says our instructions are. Resist him. Say a fancy prayer all in Latin and throw oil everywhere. That's not what it says. It says resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings you are experiencing by your, that are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. We resist Satan. Candidly, you need to do this in community. If you find yourself struggling, and you're struggling with some sin, you're struggling with pornography, you're struggling with your body image, you're struggling with depression, you're struggling with anger, you're struggling with hate, you're struggling with doubt, don't do it alone. Satan excels at picking off people who find themselves in the security of a silo and being alone. He tells you it's easier to be alone. If you're alone, you're the only one who could disappoint you. If you get together with somebody else, they're not going to understand you. They're not going to care for you. They're not going to tend to your needs. They're not going to attune to your hurt. You should stay alone. He is a liar and the king of lies. Don't be alone. Find brothers and sisters you can go to that you can trust that when you commit a word to them, it stops with them. 
And from them to the Lord, not from them to their wife, to their wife, to their wife's friend, to their wife's friend, to their neighbor, from their neighbor to the hairdresser. And we know how she gets around. Find people you can trust. And be a trustworthy person. Like, be a person that others can come to and know that when they share something with you, it stops with them. It stops with you, rather. He says, all these things work for the glory of God. James, always being one to be more succinct, says it this way, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The schemes, the plans, the purposes of the devil are incredibly alluring. The Bible tells us that he masquerades as a being of light. So when he comes to you and he brings words to you, they sound delightful and not repugnant. It sounds gratifying and not disgusting. But what we find is that what we have to do is stand against the slings and the arrows of the enemy. And we have to do that in the midst of community. This hindrance that Satan put up before Paul, he dedicated himself to the Lord, praying over and over and over again. And eventually the Lord led he and Silvanus and Timothy to the understanding, listen, we can't go back. That doesn't mean you can't go back. And so they sent Timothy there to minister and to meet the needs of the Thessalonians. And what we know in reading the book of Acts is that Paul eventually did make it back to Thessalonica. And he was able to minister and he was able to care for these people. Now look at how he describes his care and his love for them in verses 19 and 20. Satan hindered us, verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord and at his coming. See, Paul has this understanding that there will be a day that all believers have to give an account for how they behaved, how they acted. And when Paul looks at the Thessalonians, he he places in them, he entrusts to them an understanding that on the basis of his faithfulness to the Lord and how it worked out in the lives of the Thessalonians, that when Jesus showed up, the Thessalonians would be some of the evidence of Paul's faithfulness. When we think about this return of of Jesus, we read in Revelation 1 verses 7 and 8, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is coming. Paul wrote it, and he had this understanding that because Jesus is coming, and because I'm going to have to give an account, in the midst of these things, I work as hard as I possibly can to pour out Jesus on everybody I come into contact with, and you Thessalonians are someone I poured out Jesus onto, and so you are my hope, you are my joy, and you are my crown of boasting. They had this understanding that when you would win an athletic game, you'd receive a crown, and so the, the, the judges would walk over and they'd take this laurel wreath and this crown and they would place it on your head. And what that signified was your victory. What that signified was your mastery over your opponents. 
And so what Paul is looking at and it's seeing, he says, listen, Satan is leveraged against us. He is seeking to destroy. He's seeking to lay waste. But when I look at you Thessalonians, I recognize and I see in you, in your life, the imprint of my ministry on you, the defeat of Satan. I see the victor's crown on my head because I see the faithfulness I poured out on you lived in your life. He says, is it not you? Is it not you who are our joy, our crown, and our hope? How can Paul say this? How can Paul describe these people this way? It's because he says in verse 20, you are our glory and our joy. You are our glory and our joy. We all have an opportunity to engage in this. We all have an opportunity to engage in this. Not to go to Thessalonica necessarily, although I'm sure it's a wonderful town. But we all have an opportunity to engage in enhancing the Christ-likeness of those in our community. If you're a parent, you have an opportunity to enhance the Christ-likeness of your children. How do they see you respond to Jesus? How do they see you respond to suffering and disappointment? Your kids can see suffering and disappointment on your face. They can hear it in your voice. They can hear your tension. They can hear your frustration. How do they see you respond to Jesus in those things? How are your friends seeing you respond to Jesus? How are you, in fact, pouring out Jesus into their lives? Do you see the picture here that Paul is asking us to engage in, to see, and to want to become? He wants us not at the end of our lives when Jesus parts the clouds and he comes down and we hear, burr, 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 and all these things, and Jesus is there. We say, look at all the awesome things I've done. He wants instead our heart to say, look at all the amazing things that those I have shared the gospel with have done. He wants us to say, did you see what my son did? Did you see what my grandson did? Do you see how my faith is paying dividends for generations? I think we've got this all wrong. Everything in our life is built upon how well we do and what empire we can build. When we come to the gospel, it's how well the people we're pouring into can do. How quickly can you pour out your faith on the people around you? How quickly can you impact the people around you? How significantly are you willing to suffer and sacrifice for the benefit of the people in this community, in your family, and beyond? What cost is too high? See, the answer Paul is coming to is no cost is too high. No sacrifice is too great. This is the life God has called us to. This is the life of what it is to be a follower and a believer in Jesus Christ. That we would look at the lives of the people around us that I'd look to Robert and my goal would be to live my life in such a way that Robert's life is radically impacted for Jesus Christ. So that Robert could turn around and he could walk over to Jesse and Robert's life lived into Jesse could pour out in such a way that Jesse's life is forever altered unto Jesus Christ. So that Jesse could get, get up and, and, and he could go back to Jeff back there and he could pour out his life because he loves other men whose names start with a J. That's, that's, that's a whole separate area of sanctification we're going to work on. And then Jeff to uh, Chaz and Chaz to anybody else. This is how it starts. So the question becomes, are you concerned? Are you interested? Are you committed 
to setting your life up in such a way that at the return of Jesus Christ, you would see the people around you, your kids, your families, those who are presently your enemies. And in seeing them, you see your hope, your joy, and your crown of boasting. Because they are your glory and your joy. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are, in some sense, just bewildering to my mind. You give us an opportunity to work with you. You allow an enemy you have already defeated in the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, to have access to our lives at different points. But yet somehow you managed still to work that for our good and your glory. Your ways are indeed higher than, than our ways. Fathers, we're in this room this morning. We recognize that, that there are people who are hurting that are disappointed. They need somebody to come alongside them to pray with them. God, I pray that today you would give them the courage to share that hurt, that burden, that disappointment with someone else. Not for the purpose of engaging in gossip or slander, but for the purpose of being drawn closer to your throne, closer to your heart. So help them to use wisdom when determining who to share with. Father, I pray for those in this room who do not know you. They've not submitted their lives to you. That as they consider eternity, that they would consider the claims of Jesus the perfect Son of God who came, who lived a perfectly sinless life, and who took upon the cross the penalty and the punishment for their sins, for their shortcomings. Jesus died on their behalf. And he beckons them, he asks them to come to himself. God, I pray you would help them not to delay, but that today would be the day that they give their life to Jesus. That today would be the day that you make their dead heart alive, that you remove the blinders from their eyes, that blindness will become sight for them. Father, we ask these things and submit them in your Son, the Christ's name. Amen.